Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. If you love the games, we are the show for you. Each week we share stories from athletes and people behind the scenes to help you have more fun watching the games. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you? I'm doing okay. Um, we may have a little problem. Yes. It, it is not the magical hour of vacuuming. It is the magical hour of drywall. Oh, <laughs> there is some work going on here. <laughs> Thankfully, the delivery truck that was a winch and, and a crane is gone. But I apologize to the listeners if they hear some pounding or some some rather odd noises in the background. Well, we have a lot to work around, but it is what it is. We, we make it work. It. Well, making it work kind of is a perfect segue for our guest today. Yes, exactly. So as podcasters from the U.S., which large country, and we are accustomed to competing in most Olympic and Paralympic sports and getting a decent medal hall at games, one of the topics we like looking at is smaller countries who have little to no resources and athletes who are trying to carve a path for their country to have a place in elite sport. So today we are joined by Brendan Doyle, a skeleton slider from Ireland, Ireland, not known for its sliding program or it's winter Olympic athletes, but Brendan is trying to make it work and he's trying to change that. Brendan missed out on a trip to Pyeongchang 2018 by one point. And for Beijing 2022, quota places were taken away from the men to give to women's events, much like we talked with a few episodes ago with Dr. Michelle Donnelly. Uh, so he missed out on Beijing, even though uh, he would have qualified before those quota places were taken away. So he is now working on his third and final attempt to qualify for Milan Cortina 2026. We talked with Brendan about his journey. Take a listen. Brendan Doyle, thank you so much for joining us to talk about not just skeleton, but being someone from a small winter sports country and trying to make a go of it and become an Olympian as skeleton. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, that's one way of putting it. But yes, thank you. <laughs> well, it's interesting. We from the U.S. enjoy talking to people from countries that don't have as developed a sports program. And the U.S. athletes have their own issues. In sliding, we're not like Germany and Austria. No. But you've got it worse than we do. I will say that, right? I've got it different to you guys. I say that a lot too, because I mean, we obviously all carry our own issues, right? So like, I often speak to the American team because I, I moved over from Ireland to be closer to the Lake Placid training facility. They have a fantastic indoor push facility, which is open in like June, which gives me infinitely more ice to train on. And chatting with the guys and the girls there, like they all have their own issues and they're from Team USA, which makes a lot of people think that they don't have funding problems and they don't have certain kind of bottlenecks that they have to negotiate in their careers. So sometimes I feel sorry for, for the bigger nations, let's just say, because everyone expects them to have everything, where a lot of the athletes are, are, are doing it on their own with this expectation of they're in a big team, so they don't have to worry. But they definitely have it a little bit better than myself. I am the whole team, and I've essentially sold everything that I have, and I've put everything into this sport. So like the achievement of literally standing at the top of a track with my own sled and my own helmet and my own shoes is huge compared to like some of the other nations. So it's basically, it's down to each individual, but there's a lot of obstacles put in front of, let's say someone like myself coming from a smaller nation that other nations don't have to deal with. I mean, at the very least there, you had to leave Ireland. There are yeah. no tracks in Ireland. There are no tracks in the UK. No. You had to fly away from home and very far from home. Yeah, we have Great Britain, one of the, I would say the biggest, they are funded by lottery funding and they have an amazing staff and they have the support there. Like the sliders don't even know what their flights are. They don't need to know. Their job is to drive a sled where 
I'm on the other hand, I'm thinking, oh, wow, I need to learn how to market. I need to make connections. I need to figure out what companies to look for for sponsorship. I need to find out where the tracks are. I need to do everything. It doesn't happen unless I do it. There's very little, what I would say, common sense about this sport. It's all like highly specific. So to make the decision to come over to the US was something I never thought I'd do, but I'm at the stage of my career where I I have to change something. I narrowly, narrowly missed out the Olympics and I don't want a repeat again. And if I keep everything in status quo, there's a chance that the same result will happen. So I needed to figure out what I needed to do. And it's kind of ironic, you know, me being a European, you know, there's a bunch of tracks in Europe, but there's also language barriers and, and different things in the way where I come over to the States. I'm fairly proficient in the US tracks how I learned how to slide is in Calgary and Whistler and and Park City. So to move over here was probably the best option that I had in front of me with what I had to do. So I did it with the mindset of more ice time, growth, the availability of of driving to a track without the obstacles of like a language barrier and so on. And being in the Northeast, you're going to find a good size Irish expat. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone has a story about how they're Irish or they know someone that's Irish and I love it. I'm absolutely here for it. There's no problem whatsoever with it. And honestly, like it's a five hour flight home. It's closer to Ireland than it is to get over to Whistler. So I'm pretty much on my doorstep. In one sense, being in North America and having access to North American tracks is nice. But on the other hand, North America is big. Yeah. Yeah, so it is. Yeah. Do you find that you stay in Lake Placid a lot or do you go when you can or do you go when there are meets? I try to utilize the tracks as best as possible. So my off season is really the biggest driving factor behind the relocation. With the ice house opening up in June, essentially I can get consistent push times or push training sessions. Like every week I can go down and do two days and then I come home and I might do another block of gym and and flatline sprinting and then go back out to Lake Placid. So I have more available to me during the off season. And then during the actual season, it comes down to like budget is the game. Budget is the game. And, you know, we have tracks like Park City have a program where you pay a thousand dollars for a season of sliding. And that could be one sliding or that could be a hundred slides. So I try to do it that way. So this year I'm I'm predominantly saying in North America to try to make my money last into the more important years, be it year three and four of the quad, which is next season and the season after. I'm glad you mentioned payment for Park City. I would imagine you have to pay for track time. You have to pay for track time and push house time as well. Yep. Yep. I don't touch ice unless I pay for it. I don't have equipment unless it comes out of my bank account. Everything that I do comes straight out of my bank account. What does Lake Placid charge? So initially they charged quite a bit, but they've changed it now. And I think now it's like $50 for a training session. Uh, it was up, up to $200 a training session for just pushing your sled. And I am human, so I can't do, you know, 500 pushes in a day. So a push session could be eight, eight pushes, depending on how my legs are feeling. You know, I could get out to Lake Placid and everything is too stiff and I just have to go home because it's not worth injury risk for the money I've spent so sometimes you just have to shut it down and that's just I suppose that's maturity right it's making the right call and it's sometimes the expensive call but we have to listen to your body so the cost varies every time I go down a skeleton track to do an actual run costs around 25 dollars some more some less and some some places give you like a season pass some don't so it can quickly amount up just like you get a package deal yeah That's it. Yeah, you get a package deals. I mean, that's why I love Park City because it's a thousand dollars for essentially a season of sliding. So if you decide, hey, I'm going to camp here and just work on certain aspects of sliding, be it form, be it gliding, be it different, like I want to try something crazy, I've got the time to do that. I just have to pay the accommodation and, and the car rental and stuff like that. But the sliding quickly becomes affordable when you get those like package deals. Okay, so Ireland is not just small in winter sports. Ireland is not, number one, not a big country. And two, it has a long Olympic history, but not a a, a big Olympic history. And an entire country is just throwing things at the wall at me. But (laughs) how is your working with the Irish Olympic Committee when it's a small operation to begin with? 
Well, I mean, in comparison to a lot more bigger nations, absolutely. But Ireland, we've done fantastic in Olympic Games in terms of boxing. And we have track and field athletes who are shooting way above what we could expect them to do. We do have a strong sporting culture in Ireland. Not too happy about how the rugby turned out there, but I'll take it. It's fine. I'm not crying about it. But we do have a very strong sporting and and Olympic heritage we are building. And it's something that I've seen within the last, I mean, even since Paris, we've seen some really tremendous results and, and from a broader range of sports, right? So we have like Taekwondo, boxing, we have athletics, we're, we're really spreading out like badminton, modern pentathlon, like all of these different sports are really, really coming to the forefront. And that's directly from how the Olympic Federation of Ireland have, have essentially come in and they've made the whole procedure athlete centric. Now, it's tougher for winter sports because there's no infrastructure there. So you hear a lot of the times where a summer athlete, let's say track and field, if you run certain time, you will be going to the Olympics and you can qualify year one and you don't have to do anything. Your qualifications there with skeleton, you have to, you can't qualify until the year of. So often we're waiting literally a week before the Olympics to see like who's doing what and where you're going which can be a bit of a nightmare for, let's say, making a funding application for showing the context of your results. Like I can turn around and say, here's a 21st place result at a world championship means nothing to them because they're living in the world of, we want a top 10 here, or we want this. And it's really hard to stress how monumental, let's say it is to get a top 20 or top 21 or whatever it may be given that we don't have an infrastructure, we don't have the support, we don't have the staff, we don't have the, the the tracks at home. So to not only be qualified for a world championships, to be like right there with some of the bigger nations and some of the nations that I should theoretically not be competitive with is a massive, massive win. And I feel I'm looking at the tides and they are changing a little bit in Ireland and we are getting some interest. We have a Nordic skier who's already qualified for Italy. And then we have speed skaters, we have curling, we have ice hockey. So like there's a real buzz behind winter sports in Ireland now. So, and I do see the Olympic Federation of Ireland, they've done fantastic work with supporting athletes. It's just trying to get, let's say the likes of sports Ireland behind that drive, which I do see so as well. But whether or not it's in my next three years, I, I'm finished after Italy. I can't go anymore. I can't put my life on hold anymore, but it would be great to see some funding and support in my career. But we have done a lot more in the last maybe two seasons, three seasons in terms of winter sports, and I can only see it improving too. Does the Irish Olympic Committee and Sport Ireland, do they look at what you're doing and go, okay, so how are you organizing this? as a framework to like keep going forward for once you retire, then people aren't reinventing the wheel if you've got more skeleton racers behind you. Yeah, there's actually, it's quite a communication rich environment right now. And they're trying to build the parameters and they're trying to um, essentially this kind of, I'm not going to say friction point, but it's like one side is saying that, you know, these results will come once the support is there, but obviously you need a certain level of proficiency to warrant any support. So like, it's kind of like, how do we show that this athlete can go on to do better things while still having a, a bar of entry? So I do see there's quite a lot of calls and, and, and meetings to discuss what's happening and I think the Olympic Federation of Ireland are doing everything they can to put context to, let's say, a result which may not look as impressive as it actually is. I'm quite excited to see where it goes. And I do see a lot of work being done. It's just when I think is the, is, is the question. As a pioneer, it's so hard to be the first one or one of the first people. How does that feel going through it? And what do you think about that kind of keeps you going? I would say that right now it, it feels like a little bit of a war, like a battle zone. It just feels like an incredible amount of obstacles put in front of me and I don't really have anything to negotiate with them. Ireland has like our best performance at the Olympic Games was a fourth place with Clifton Rollisley in 2002. One of my favorite tracks is Park City again. I've given them a lot of advertisement, but um, Park City 2002, where he narrowly came fourth behind Switzerland's Gregor Stelly what a race that was and he really worked on getting the federation to grow 
there was a lot of fight and there was a lot of friction against what he wanted to do. And I've stepped in and I've probably been the most consistent slider to represent Ireland. It's, as I said, it's my seventh season now. And we have a, a young girl who's looking to um, represent Ireland and we're going to be sliding together at the North America's Cup this year. And that feels like incredibly exciting to, to have someone else come on. I have done a lot of work to try to show just how hard it is to be a winter athlete. A lot of people, and this is like a misconception almost, but when you're saying that you're training for the for the Olympics, everyone assumes summer and then they go, oh, just the winter one kind of thing. And it's equally as is, is tough. And the price tag that, that comes along with this is insane. When I like look at runners talking about the training camps, I'm kind of like, I wish, I wish that's what my training camps were. But to, to say I'm a pioneer, it's, it's quite flattering. I just have a goal and I'm more stubborn than I am. Uh, logical with what I'm trying to do. I have such a passion for this sport and for what sport can offer people that, you know, I owe it to myself to continue until I, I've achieved my goal. So that's where I am right now. And if I can make one of my goals would be to have other people participate in this sport without having to give up their everything, without having to sell everything. You shouldn't have to make that choice of, you know, represent your country or like not have anything at all. So it would be amazing that even off my work, let's say this new girl comes on and she gets funding three years into her career as opposed to seven. That'd be fantastic. How great is it to even consider having somebody to work with now? I've been like literally on my own for the last seven years. So to have someone else to turn up to and like cheer off at the start of a race in our colors is is so awesome. I say that, look, I've... Worked with a lot of nations because coaching is insanely expensive. So I kind of jump in with different nations. I've worked with Team GB. I've worked with Team Canada. And they just welcome you in. And it is amazing. It's so much easier. The sport is so punishing on like emotionally and mentally. So to have a, a group of people to fall back on and just unwind and de-stress is huge. But to have someone compete for your country Look, all I can say is there's a team event in, in 2026 and it would mean the world that if we could, I make the games, she made the games and we, we make the first mixed team event be huge. So that'd be a nice little cherry on the top of my whole story, I suppose. So how do you improve when you are looking to yourself for coaching or YouTube for coaching or other countries, hopefully? A lot of trial and error, hitting walls, bruising myself burns scrapes crashes the whole lot like and embracing it you need a good memory but also the memory of a goldfish you need to be able to let things go but also remember the why and along the way i've i've been lucky enough to be mentored by some phenomenal coaches who just want you to grow as a human being but also want to teach you essentially how to fish as opposed to just execution and there's coaches i've worked with that have taught me more about the sport in a week than I have in a whole season with someone. And it's people like that that help you grow as a person and make you believe in yourself. Pasta syndrome is absolutely real. I still suffer from it now. It's totally real. But there's people out there that make you second guess that and think maybe I do deserve to be here. Maybe I have performed well and you know I've done the work to say that I belong here. So I do a lot of listening and then I let it just all the mistakes that I've made, I remember them and I learn from them. It's so hard to fast track this sport because it's all on feel and it's all on communication and we all communicate differently. So like when someone says do something in my head, I did it, but I, I didn't really do it. So yes, just time and experience and just owning your mistakes and looking at those mistakes as opportunity to grow. I feel like you've got the setting for an 80s movie here where you got the <laughs> stereotypical like rich Germans who've got and it's they're, they're not necessarily mm -hmm. in the skeleton head but like the rich guys who've got everything going for them do they really act like that no man they're all wonderful <laughs> I wish I could trash talk them but they're all wonderful people is there one thing that you would just love to have that you can't afford right now it's just support, consistent coaching. It's so important because we're all individuals on the sled and we all interpret things different ways. So to have a consistent mentor or coach week on week watching you 
essentially make the same mistake again or the mistake develops into okay well you messed the first part up but guess what you fixed it in the middle of the corner so there's that like development of the relationship between athlete and coach and that's super important every every aspect of what i've done has made me a better person so like i don't necessarily i wouldn't wish for it to change because i'm i'm a product of all of the struggles that i've been through and i've learned so much about myself so like with this new girl coming on i'm just going to try help her with the, the mistakes I've, I've made. I'm not going to tell her what to do, but I'm just going to give her my experiences and what I've learned. And like the times where I've sat at it at the end of a race and shook my head and like, why didn't I listen to the coach or why didn't I do this? And it's just those really gut wrenching um, mistakes or lessons. I would say that having a, a consistent coach and support network there just kind of somewhat helps you fast track through the sport. But it's so funny. It's, the people who are around you make the sports, not medals, not times, not races, not qualifications, none of that. It's the people that like sit down with you when you're like crying and you're hurt and they look at you and they say they believe in you and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to come back tomorrow then. I was going to quit today, but now I'm coming back tomorrow. And, and that's what it is like having, having that environment get you through it. Maybe Hugh Jackman from Eddie the Eagle is available <laughs> as a coach. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if he's... Good looking enough to play the part in the room, but, you know. Okay, well, well, we should talk a little bit about struggle because that is such an important part of your story that you, mm -hmm. you have shared very openly, and yep. I, I'm so thrilled that you do. So you've had your mental health challenges, and yep. now you are coming off. Obviously, I've known you for all of half an hour. So strong and so positive. And just talk a little bit about, about where you were, where you are, how that evolution happens for you yeah it's it's been quite like i never ever intended on my life being as interesting let's say as it has been and i've personally i've come a long way and as i said to you just a minute ago like all of the mistakes i've made on the sled i wouldn't trade them for the world i'm the person who i am because of my mistakes and the lessons i've learned and there was a lot that i went through i was a, a member of vanguard shiakana which is the, the police service in ireland and I was attacked on duty. There was a person attacking their mother and I basically, we were called to deal with the situation and he turned the weapon on me and I ended up with some cuts on my hand. Still to this day, permanently, permanently, like the ligament is still completely curled up so I can't straighten my fingers and I've lost all the feeling in my thumb. And having a background in sports, I was able to somewhat compartmentalize the, the physical injury because you get injured in sports it is what it is the body heals you just have to let it do its thing but I went down this kind of road that I had no idea that I was going to go down and it started with like really vivid night terrors where I would dream of the incident over and over and I would wake up kind of grabbing my hand still thinking I was bleeding or the, the person there was still armed with the knife and to wake up to that we've woken up from like nightmares in the past and you're kind of like oh it's going to take me a few minutes to get back to sleep this, like, I was waking up, my heart was racing, I was sweating. It was very overwhelming. And I eventually developed insomnia, which essentially I associated falling to sleep with having these dreams, which I then tried to avoid waking up from. So I would have problems essentially getting sleep. And to me, even looking back after all of this time, the insomnia was probably the biggest catalyst to the direction in which my life changed. I now sleep like a baby, but you know, then I was really struggling. I maybe, maybe, maybe get an hour or two of, of broken sleep. And that was over, over maybe five, five years longer. And it didn't give me the ability to decompress and, and, and take on the new day. Everything molded into each other and problems just started to compound. So when I, I wasn't able to get to sleep, obviously life was harder to deal with. And then social networks started to break down and, and everything around me, I wasn't able to train. I, I wasn't able to go to work. So I was feeling like I was letting my work colleagues down. I was letting my friends down. I was letting myself down. And it was just this pile of like negative pressure, always, always just day in, day out. And, you know, I tried a lot of different things. I, I went to my doctor and I, I took what I thought was the right steps. And the thing is when you're going through depression or when you're going through anxiety or PTSD, 
the the easiest person to fool is yourself. So you might think you're okay because it's such a slow burner. It's such a slow, slow, slow burner. There wasn't a day where I like figured out, oh, I'm depressed or, oh, I have insomnia or, oh, I have this. There was none of that. So I just felt every day, I was like, hey, I'm not getting a night's sleep in or it's been a while since I've seen my friends. Like it was, it was just a slow burner and to fill the nights, essentially, I would get in my car and I would, from Dublin to Cork is like a three and a half hour drive. I would drive down to Cork, see the welcome to Cork sign and then drive back to Dublin. Literally just like, just to fill the nights. And things were really, really getting out of hand. And I was getting super frustrated with myself because I attempted to go back to work and I was having panic attacks in work and dealing with absolute like mundane, normal calls, like a person speeding, go to the area, check it out and see if you can catch them. That would literally have me like feeling like I was having an asthma attack. Like I'd hear like my call sign on the radio and my weight vest would feel like, you know, 70 pounds and feel my my collar was choking me. So I, I would grab my inhaler because I'm an asthmatic. That's what an asthma attack feels like. I take it and nothing would change. And like that in of in of itself is scary because you're like, you don't know what's going on. And I had some good sergeants who recognized what I was doing and said, you need to take some time off again. And that made me feel like more of a failure because I was ready to get back on the horse in my head. I was like, it's, let's go teach yourself. It's okay. And things just got worse and worse. And it got to the stage where I felt the only way that I could take control of everything is to take my life essentially. And it was, I remember the day I remember the decision I made. I wasn't trying to make a scene. I wasn't trying. I just felt like I have no other options. I'm never going to get out of this. I'm never going to progress to anything. There's no hope for me. So that this was the one way that I could take control of the situation and I could it, it feels like you're living in a storm almost like it's just this constant high energy. You're not able to take a breath. And I felt like taking my life was the one way to take control. And when I hear people who say they can't understand people who are having suicidal thoughts, I think that's a fantastic thing to hear because that means they've never really, really, really felt it. Because to me, it was such a, it was like, I'm going to the store to buy some milk. It was just such a nonchalant. This is my only option left. And that's all it was. And I got incredibly lucky because where I was going to to do it, I look at a girl behind me talking to her mom and I was like, I can't do anything here. Like she's young. There's going to be other opportunities. I'm just going to let it slide. And the mother and the daughter went off on their day and they did whatever. And I went back to my car and I broke down and I went back to my friend and we went to our local grocery store and we we're stood beside the bananas. And I was like, this is what I'm just have to do. I just had to blurt out. I didn't know what to do. I, I didn't feel like I was having an intervention or like, this is what you do. I just blurted it out because I was like, oh, like I need to like, I need to tell someone. And the relationship we had, he just made fun of me, but that was our bond. And we went back to the house and we had some chocolate and then we started talking. His reaction to it was so pivotal because he made me feel like you're going to be okay. Let's not go into panic mode right now. You're here. You've told me you've held yourself accountable. Let's sit down and talk about it. And that's what we did. And it was his intervention where he was like, you need to just go back to training, go back to sport, do something that you love to do. And sport was always that sport was always this magical place where, you know, 20 minutes down the line didn't exist. It was here and now what I was doing, my set in front of me, my rep in front of me, the exercise I was doing, that's all I had to worry about. And it wasn't a straightforward path to getting back into sports, but you know, once a week, yeah, okay, I will give that a go. And I did it. And then, you know, I, I eventually moved it up to two or three. And then I was hanging out in a group of people who said, Hey, you should return to track and field, try a fun race, like a Christmas race or something like that, just as a goal. They didn't know what was going on, but they just wanted to see me back in training again and in competition. And I did it. And it was just this like, positive goal to work towards and I remember I had a playlist on my phone and it would play over my computer randomly and one of the songs that would be on the playlist I would play in the gym came on and I was like oh I'm excited I want to go to the gym and I remember that being the first time that I looked forward I was like I want to do 
or I'm looking forward to doing. And I was just like a little thing in my head where I like take the box almost. I'm like, oh, that feels a little bit more like me. And um, I just carried it from there. I went to that random race and guess who was there? The president of the Irish Bobsled and Skeleton Federation, who happened to come over from the UK just to watch one of his triple jumpers. And I mean, we said serendipity at the start of this call. That is literally it. Like that is what I went through. I like I, so many things that needed to be perfect for that moment to happen. And I saw the opportunity ahead of me and I went with it. And here I am now dealing with the the, the quote unquote problems that I'm dealing with, but you know, not really problems. It, they're just, they're just obstacles. Okay. I want to go back to the asthma and the hand injury, but put a, yeah. put a pin in that because uh, I want to ask, you know, obviously mental health is not a, you know, you had this one very dramatic moment. Yep. Like you said, it's not a straight path. So on those nights, and, and please don't answer if you're not comfortable, on those nights when you can't sleep, like all of us have, mm-hmm. do you ever get that panic? you like, oh, I'm heading down. Does it ever feel like you can see it again? Obviously, I am a huge fan and an advocate of therapy. Even if there's nothing going on, I believe everyone should be able to sit down, have a chat and be like, cool, we're still good. Like, it's just a little check-in. One of the things that stuck with me from a therapy session that I had was I have been given a gift of knowing my limits. So he used the analogy of swimming away from the shoreline. And if you just swim and swim and swim and you turn around, you're like, oh, bugger, I can't swim back. I'm too far. That's essentially what happens when when people are in a situation and they don't know their limits and they start getting stressed and burnt out and, and, and things start collapsing, but they don't recognize, they just see the, they see the stress, but they don't know the cause. And he said to me, like, you've been given this gift of knowing your limits and you can recognize sooner when things are starting to get a little bit hairy. So he said to me, it's like, you're swimming out and you just keep checking over your shoulder just to make sure that shoreline is still in reach. And, you know, I've had, really tough times, you know, missing out at the Olympics sucked and like worrying about funding sucks. And like every single year I do this sport, I think it's my last year because I just don't know if or how or where the money's coming from. But I have the gift of knowing that like bad days happen and you can be sad sometimes and you can have a bad night's sleep. And that doesn't mean the world is falling down around you. It just means you're human and you're having a bad night. So I look back at everything I've been through and it's made me stronger. It's made me, it's made me more capable. And, you know, I never like, I don't worry about sleep anymore. I don't worry about things as much anymore. If I have a bad one, I recognize it. I'll take the next day of training off or light or whatever. And if it keeps happening, then I'm straight on to a therapist or whoever it needs to be to say, Hey, just checking in here. Things are getting a little bit ropey. Am I good? But yeah, it's a gift, honestly. Okay. So this is how I know you're Irish. You're an asthmatic. (laughs) And you had a severe hand injury. Mm -hmm. So you pick a sport that puts you in the cold, which is an asthma trigger for a lot of people. At altitude. And that requires incredible hand strength. Yeah. So (laughs) talk about how that works for you. (laughs) And it's funny because like for me personally, at the end of all of this, my whole goal is just to show people that there's always hope. It's just a matter of time. You just have to find what works for you. So like I genuinely believed it was hopeless, absolutely hopeless. And now I'm like competing in this objectively crazy sport, head first, down an ice shoot at like 145 kilometers an hour. It's objectively just insane. But I have the mental capacity to deal with it. I have the the strength, the inner strength to deal with it. And that's come from my past and, and how I feel I can I can manage things. I don't know if I'm just like, if I like a challenge, it's kind of seems like I do. Like they call us the fight in Irish for a reason, but it's, I just, I just love how it, it, I've gone from one end of this like really, really tough human situation into this other kind of like side of humanity where we, we see people like fighting for greatness and pushing yourself and being a student of your craft and I just love how it all works together. So I still, as I said, I still don't, I, I don't want to take the time to think about what I do because I might freak myself out a little bit, but I just, every, every single like obstacle I come, I come up with, I just find a way around it and I just try to figure it out the best I can. And that's trial and error really. With the hand injury, how does that affect your start? Because that's really, you need the hands on the start a lot. 
Yeah, I mean, so I'm lucky. I'm I'm left-handed and it happened to my right hand. So, I mean, there's the ligament there. I can't straighten that. And then all along here, that's all numb. So it's all numb to date. So it, it affects a lot of like training, lifting. And funnily enough, putting gloves on is an absolute pain. I can't do it quickly. I need a solid 10 minutes just to get this finger into a glove. It is what it is. I've adjusted to it now. I have been offered like a surgery to fix it, but they want tendon and ligaments and stuff for my hamstring and i'm a 38 year old athlete i don't want them touching me at all so i don't even want to let a tough breeze touch my hamstrings let alone slicing off some ligament so it's it's just something that i've i I don't really think about it anymore because the stuff i do in the gym i've adapted i use straps i figure out different ways to do things and then there's just things i just can't really do anymore which is fine i find other ways to work around that like thing i can't do and then for the actual pushing, I'm a left-handed, so I push with my left hand. I lift with my left hand, so kind of got lucky there. As if I couldn't love you anymore. <laughs> now we're together with our left-handed. Yes. <laughs> Kit Oaks is what they're called in Irish. Oh, so, yikes. There you go. There's a bit of Irish. <laughs> okay, let's talk about just missing out on yeah. the Olympics. And yeah. Pyeongchang <laughs> was a point. Which had to be frustrating. Stop. Yep. I, I was trying not to swear. I can see oh, that. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Okay. I'm Irish. <laughs> yeah. Beijing. Now, we're going to couch this in. Just a few weeks ago, we talked with somebody about gender equity, a professor. And the way that gender equity is happening isn't necessarily giving places to women. It is taking places from men to give to women. So is that what happened in Beijing? <laughs> yeah. So... Pyeongchang, second, my, it's my second season. I'm still learning the ropes, and it's something that I can take on the chin, digest, accept. You know, we had a continental r- rule spot for that Olympics, which has since been removed. So there was there was an athlete awarded a spot literally regardless of their finishing or where they came or how many races. They just had to do five races. That was their qualification mark where I had to qualify with points. It is what it is. It was a rule, and it's been changed. So I just took that on the chin. I love the sport too much to let Pyeongchang get at me, but but Beijing was such a different environment because I rose to the occasion. I finished 42nd in the world. I put in some phenomenal races. Like I was out of my skin in some places. And then, you know, I go to Altenburg, a track I've never been to, quite a difficult track. And I put down some good runs and I was proud of how I held myself as an athlete and the execution level was, you know, Olympic level, it, it was there. And then... The rule change was something that was so soul crushing to me. And again, I don't think there's a person on this planet who doesn't think there should be uh, equal opportunity for everybody. I, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what who you are or what you do. If you've made the decision to rise above your own obstacles and compete for your country, you should have the opportunity to qualify for the Olympics. But it just it just feels like the execution of that in in 2022 was just a little off. It was a balanced. Uh, Excel sheet, but I don't think it was a balanced like start sheet. And the proportionality between men and women, there's just more men in the sport, and women is growing. But you know, every single year I looked at the numbers, and every single year it was plus or minus a percent in terms of proportionality. There was a year, I think it was 2018 actually, where it was like 12 percent of the female population slid, while it was eight percent of the men. But then this year it was 25% of the female start list got to the Olympic Games. And I finished 42nd. It was a phenomenal finish. And they had to then, for the women's side of things, they had to not only take in more, but they couldn't fill the spots with the criteria. So they had to open the criteria on top of that and let people who finished outside of that criteria gain a spot. Again, really tough, really, really hard pill to swallow, but I'm just a small single slid nation. And it was something that I just had to absorb. Beijing was a a tough year for me. We were in the courts of sport arbitration, literally right up. I flew home to Ireland to get my Olympic kit sent to my house to try it on to see if I go. And I'll never forget that moment because that was heartbreaking because we all have that like dream of getting your Olympic kit and you see it on social media where everyone has a little event and you get your ticket and you can say I'm going. But like mine was like, we don't know. And we have to presume you're going, but don't expect it. So I was like, 
they're like, you just try on the jacket to make sure it's the right size for you. And we were like, like I was, it was the last minute and that was, it was really tough because I genuinely felt I, I represented myself, my country to a high, high level. And it just, I feel on the year, I was just the wrong gender. But again, I believe that in the long runs, just as athletes make mistakes, I feel that NOCs and IOCs and whoever maybe can make mistakes too, but it, it's their willingness to recognize maybe the rule wasn't as perfect as we wanted to be and how can we improve it going forward just to protect athletes who have, I don't know, maybe put their life on hold for 10 years to represent the country and then this new rule comes in. Any other year, I'd be an Olympian right now. Any other year, 42nd would have got me well, well within qualification standards. Like I could have taken off the last race and still went, not 2022. Is it set in stone for 2026? the rules or not not yet so with the ibsf we've actually undergone i've seen some change in terms of participation so for the first time ever what would have to happen is obviously you want your world cup spot right so you want your world cup spot to get yourself the maximum opportunity for race selection now what the ibsf which is the international bobsled and skeleton federation what they've done is they've changed the rules so last year obviously this year this season i had my world cup spot and what they've done now is if you have your World Cup spot this year, you have that all the way to Italy. You don't have to requalify. You've no idea. It is like it is such a relief. When I read that rule, I was like, this has got to be false because I've never had a rule work out in my favor. But it's true and it's it's there and it's it's good. So now the way to get into the Olympics in, in skeleton is you need your World Cup spot and then you race World Cup and only the points that you get in World Cup are the points that are counted for the Olympics. So what happened in years prior, you had continental cups like the North America's or the European Cup and then something called the Intercontinental Cup. The Intercontinental Cup, in my eyes, is it was very, very competitive. Like, you know, we have Germany. Germany have a million sliders, all fantastic, all sliding since they're two years old. And they would have three World Cup spots. But then the next two guys are just as good, but they don't quite make the team. They're in ICC and they're the guys that I'm racing against. It was a really, really good competition, good points and a good route to the Olympics. But the problem is you could have sliders who are World Cup, World Cup for years, phenomenal sliders, but they drop down into the other events. So they drop down into the North America's Cup, which if you're looking in terms of qualification, you finish outside the top four, you're gone. It's, it's, the points drop off. And then in the ICC, they're falling down again. So it's putting well, smaller nations kind of like, like just boom, boom, boom down the list. Unless you have like a worldly competition and they have a bad day, then you might gain a spot, but it made it tougher. So I think this rule now is a little bit better because if you want my spot, you have to come and take it from me. You have to race me. And if you beat me on the race, well, guess what? You bet me and you're better. And I could shake your hand and I can like not complain because racing is racing. There's no sure things. And to me, it just feels like a little bit more of an honest way to get the best people for the position because they all have to race each other. There's no jumping around from track to track and there's no sticking on this circuit or going to here or going to there. It's just people racing. And, and much like in Formula One or IndyCar, there's different packs of racing. So there's the guys who are fighting for medals and then there's the middle of the pack. And then there's the smaller nation guys who are like, trying to get like into the final run or trying to get that maybe top 15 or something like that. That's where the racing's going to be for me. I'm never going to like walk in. And it's, I don't think it's me looking down upon myself, but I'm not looking in thinking metal, right? Like I, I know where I am in the world, but having those races where you're like, you know, on the heels of those guys in those teams who should be way ahead of you. Like that's where I'm going for. And with these new rules, I feel that it's going to be a more honest start list in 2026. And with that, I think what they're trying to do to actually answer your question is they're trying to get more participation numbers in World Cup and more participation numbers in World Cup means more participation numbers in the Olympic Games, which I'm obviously here for because that would make the Olympics something that's achievable again. So I'm excited to see it's a lot of change. There's a lot of old ways of qualifying are gone. So we have to adapt and try to overcome. But I feel like Regardless, win, lose, or draw, it will be a lot more of an honest start list in 2026 in terms of who's there and who didn't. If you just if you didn't make it, that's racing. Because you're self-funded yep. and you choose your races because you have to figure out where you can afford to go to. Mm -hmm. Does having the Yangqing track 
now in the mix make it difficult? Because that's an expensive trip yep. if you chose to go to that one. And the problem is you don't really get a choice because there's only eight races Olympic year. There's only eight World Cup races there. That's all you've got. So if they put China on the list, you're going to China. If they put Segula on the list, you're going to Segula. If you're going to Pyeongchang, you're going to Pyeongchang. There's no options anymore. It, it used to be like, oh, well, you know, there's a North America's Cup in Whistler followed the week later by an Intercontinental Cup in Whistler. So you've got two, four, five race, six races there. Sorry, eight races there alone. Two, two races in each. And then like you go on to other tracks depending on what you can afford. But now it's just like whatever they choose, which I hope they take our bank account into consideration because Olympic year in of itself is like all hands on deck. It's money. It's expensive. Sport is expensive. Like, I mean, even a light season is going to cost you in around 15, 20,000. And that's me selling. Like I don't have savings. I don't have anything like that. And I just hope that when they make a, a race selection for the Olympic year, they take into consideration the smaller, smaller budgets. Cause everyone's there for like everyone, everyone is there for the small nations, right? That's what makes the Olympics so amazing. Like cool. Germany gets another medal. Cool. Like we see an American on the podium. We're all used to that. But where did like this kid finish? And where did I like, why is there an Australian here? Or like there's an Irish guy doing skeleton. Like, did he get lost? That kind of stuff. Like that's what we're all there for. So I, just, I hope they take that into consideration, but you know, we just have to wait and see. Well, speaking of getting lost, if you had gone to Beijing, you might still be stuck there. <laughs> oh, we, al yeah. we almost got stuck in the sliding track area. It was a bad scene and the, freezing cold. The so. track looks phenomenal, though. It, do it, like, it does look The it architecture is looks looking. amazing. Yeah, beautiful. And but, all the sliders are just like, it's so much fun. It looks amazing. But, you know, I was meant to be going to, to China this year. I was meant to be heading off for a World Cup now, but expensive so lake placid it is <laughs> speaking of choosing races we know now that milan cortina sliding is going to be somewhere somewhere put yep. in your vote <laughs> okay because um, i know because you and i have the deciding vote here oh it's down to us oh snap uh <laughs> all right let me let me call the lads back in ireland and see if we can bring up a, <laughs> a track real quick because that'd be that'd be a lot of fun i think so oh where would i want it to be picturesque i St. Moritz. St. Moritz is a clear and obvious choice. It's beautiful. It's naturally made. You go under a bridge. You can't hear it. Like you can hear people talk. When you're on the track, you can hear everything. Normally it's just like your head's in the washing machine and it's like, like you can't hear anything. But in St. Moritz, it's you're sliding on silk. The track is kind to our brains. It doesn't really hurt too much. Like you can think after sliding. And it's fun. It's so much fun to slide there. It's a long track as well. You, you still hit 130 odd kilometers an hour. And then the start list is so like important because every other track in the world, the first few sleds off are the fastest and then the track degrades just because people melt it with the runners and stuff. With St. Moritz, because it's natural, it's a little different and it gets slicker. So in the afternoon, the later on in the event, you have like this opportunity to like have a faster track and you're like almost at an advantage. So you could jump people in front of you, which makes for great racing, right? Like the guy at the bottom of the list suddenly overtakes middle of the pack and you're like, Oh wow, you've did well. That's awesome. So like, it's cool. I, I love the un unpredictability of that race, but on the other hand, because it's, it's a natural track. We were at world champs last year and they had real issues actually keeping the track and, and getting it open in time. And there was teams who were going out before. It would have been in around the same time as when the Olympics is that like February, March period. And it was too hot to run sleds. So I feel that maybe the unpredictability of whether or not we'll have ice could be a major talking point because we've already facing a situation where the home crowd can't make a track. And then we turn to this other track and they're like, mm, we don't know if we can get ice. It'd be a, a big L. <sighs> what other track? Altenburg just sucks, man. It just, <laughs> it's a fun track and like whatever, like it's, it's a fun sliding track, but man, like it's just, it's just gray and it's just dull. And then like Eagles is like the most dull, like I, Eagles is fun, but like it's slow. It's like, 
it's a pedestrian track. It's where everyone learns how to slide and the outrun sucks because it just like does this weird, like you're hitting a wall at the very end, like the whole track you're just gliding. And then all of a sudden it just feels like they made a 90 degree wall for you to destroy your right shoulder on. And you know, cool. So I don't, <laughs> and then like you've got Le Plan in France, super high G track, like super duper, like just like your head is pitted. And I like those kind of tracks, but, um, I know if I'm putting in my vote, man, I'm, I'm just going to have to be an emotional human being and say St. Moritz just for the pure love and spectacle. And yeah, like you've gotten an Olympics at a natural track. How cool is that? What can people who are listening to this and who want to support you and other small nation athletes, what can we do? Following, following on social media is, is quite big because it gives us leverage when we're trying to speak to sponsors. It's tough for me because it feels like it means nothing, but like when you have that support, it does help when you're abroad. And then like myself, like I, I have my own website. I, I accept donations. I do what I can do to get by. So like, you know, you can go on to all of my, my social handles at face oil, slideandirish.com. You can just reach out and, and even say, Hey, heard your, heard your, your podcast. And to me personally, like that's the bigger thing. That's what sports is all about is, is making the the connections and helping people. So that's what I'll always remember when I finish up and when I retire is the conversations that I've had with people and the connections I've made. So like that actually does help because you know, as I said earlier on, you're kind of in a, in, a, in a war on your own. So when you get those people reaching out, it does help. Excellent. Well, Brendan, thank you so much for joining us and we'll be watching you this season and the next, and the next few the next few next three yeah i appreciate it thanks thanks for having me on it's it's always great to talk my sports not a lot of people know about it and once you experience it once you see it you like you'll probably fall in love like i did so i i appreciate you guys chatting with me excellent thank you so much brendan you can follow brendan on twitter or x and instagram he is face doyle there and his website is slidingirish.com he's also started a nonprofit called build through sports and its goals are to highlight the character building aspects of sport and how taking up sport at a younger age can build a lot of positive attributes that can contribute to success in all aspects of life and then fund sports allowing more people to participate and fund athletes who are living examples of the organization's mission statement. You can find out more at buildthroughsport.org. Website currently not live, but if you're listening to this much later, it may very well be live, so you can check it out. That is buildthroughsport.org. Speaking of building, how's the Kickstarter going? We got a Kickstarter. We are currently 12% funded, so we've got some work to do. And in an ordinary month, we produce about four episodes of the podcast. But during the Olympics and Paralympics, we will be producing, not to scare you, 34 daily episodes and at least two weekly episodes. It's a lot for a very short period of time. And that kind of production schedule gets very expensive. And we know that you love the daily recaps during the games. And this time around, both Jill and I will be there the whole time getting you the stories that you can't find on the major broadcasters. And your support makes this all possible. So we have some great incentives on the Kickstarters and some fun giveaways at all levels. And you can check it out. You can go to our website, flamealivepod.com, and click on one of my very cool four-panel Kickstarter links. That sound means it's time for our history moment. All year long, we've been looking at Seoul 1988 as it is the 35th anniversary of those games. Allison, it is your turn for a story. What do you well, got? Well, I got in trouble a little bit with Brendan when I was talking about Ireland at the Olympics. And I'm like, oh, Ireland doesn't have a lot of medals. So <laughs> I wanted to talk about Ireland at the Seoul Olympics. Okay. Which I'm not sure it's going to do me any favors, but this was Ireland's 14th appearance as its own team in the Summer Olympics from 1924 forward. 61 athletes competed in 12 sports. Ireland didn't win any medals in Seoul. However, they did make a few statements that come back later on. Terry McHugh competed in men's javelin. He won 21 consecutive national titles, and he still holds the Irish record. Whoa. And he competed at six Olympics, including two Winter Games, where he was involved in bobsleigh. Wow. Is some history of bobsled in Ireland. 
Wayne Pocket Rocket McCullough lost <laughs> in the third round of the light flyweight boxing, but he returned in 1992 and won the silver medal. Oh, good for him. He was also the first fighter from Northern Ireland to hold a professional title, and that was the WBC Bantamweight Championship. Seoul was also the Olympic debut of swimmer Michelle Smith. Oh. So she competed in three events and did not make it out of the heats. And unfortunately, Smith became probably the most infamous Irish Olympian in 1996 when her four medals were clouded by serious accusations of doping. They were never proved. She was not stripped of her medals. However, she was banned uh, for four years, which essentially ended her amateur career for tampering with her urine sample using alcohol. Hmm. Sounds like maybe something we talked about in the dirtiest race in the world when just random person showed up with some beer <laughs> at the, the testing room in Seoul. And poured a little into the cup. <laughs> Welcome to Shukflistan. It is the time of the show where we check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests of the show and listeners who make up our citizenship of Shukflistan. Uh, Pan Am Games, they party, are over. Party in Santiago for wow. Shukflistan. Wow. Deanna Price won gold in hammer throw. Jordan Gray won bronze in heptathlon. Aaron Jackson won gold in 500 meter and bronze in 200 meter inline speed skating. Tom Scott won his third consecutive gold in under 75 uh, kilogram kumite karate. Sunny, uh, Sunny Choi won gold in breaking, which qualifies her for Paris. And sailor Stephanie Robel and Maggie Shea won bronze in the 49F Xer. Wow, that is quite the haul for Shook Flaston. Well done, team. We are very proud of you and hope you all had a good time there. I, I know I saw some of Deanna's posts on Instagram. She's just over the moon of how well she did. And we know someone else who's been having fun in Santiago was listener Nicholas, who's been <laughs> yes. posting some amazing <laughs> stuff from down there. Right. Uh, Nicholas, if you don't know, runs the blog Olympic Rings and Other Things. And he uh, was able to get a media accreditation for the Pan Am Games and went down for part of it and just had an amazing time. So look for posts and stories about that from Nicholas on his blog. The Parapan American Games are starting soon. They kick off on Friday, November 17th, and Bacha player Allison Levine and wheelchair rugby star Chuck Aoki will be there. A little bit of news from Paris 2024. We are getting more word of hospitality houses. The Lotto Belgium house, they announced the sale the 3rd of November, and they went on sale the 4th of November. So we'll have the link to that in the show notes. Also, Team GB House will be open to the public for the first time. The house is located at Pavilion uh, d'Armonville in Bois de Boulogne, Paris's second largest park. Tickets went on sale November 7th. These are expensive, I will tell you. I think it started at 150 pounds. Yes. That's where they start. Yes. So they have gold, silver, and bronze tiers. And like you said, bronze is 150 pounds, silver 270 pounds, and gold is 435 pounds. Any level gets you evening access to the Team GB house. It sounds like it's only going to be open to the public from 7 to 11 p.m. And they have like Olympian meet and greets, food, Beer and wine, soft drinks, not every level will get that stuff. But there's going to be live entertainment and you can watch the feeds there and celebrate with Team GB athletes in person. So we will have a link to that in the show notes as well. Nielsen's Grace Note has done another update on its virtual metal table forecast. This is always interesting that they do this. And we were not convinced last time. Because these came out a few months ago, am I right? Yeah, this this came out in the summer, and it's now getting updated monthly. 
depending on results at different events. So I'm not sure when like the Pan Am game medals will hit this forecast, but right now their analysis does not include Russia and Belarus, and they are predicting USA to win 127 medals. China coming in second at 75, Great Britain 65, Japan 56, and France getting 53 to round out the top five countries. We will see how this works. Because I'm sure not having some countries in the mix is kind of wreaking havoc with their predictions. Right. Because if you take Russia out, you know, gymnastics, rhythmic gymnastics, track and field, Mm -hmm. it's definitely going to skew the numbers pretty significantly. Right. And Shuklastani Bill Mallon said on X that 127 medals would be the most ever for the USA, except for 1904 and 1984, which were both home Olympics that had a decreased number of international entrants. So in 2020, the U.S. got 113 medals, he said. So it'll it'll be interesting to see if these predictions do pan out. We will definitely keep an eye on it, though. Buongiorno. <laughs> you sound so happy. I don't know why you're so happy in Italian because, boy, they keep trying. They keep trying with the sliding track in Italy. I was trying to bring a little positivity to the, <laughs> to the crummy news for Italy on this one. So Italy, of course, is the bobsled track saga keeps going on. This is another telenovela here. It is, really. but Baba Novella sounds just... I'll have to find out what... The equivalent is in Italian. (laughs) Yeah. So in the latest episode of the novella, Italy has come back again with, yes, we could host sliding in our country. We can fix up the track from Torino 2006, which is in really bad shape. It was not well constructed to begin with, and it went out of commission by 2012. Six years, just six years. And there's a lot of bobsled that goes on in Europe. A lot of competitions that would not have been difficult, I think, to put this track in the rotation for the sliding sports schedule. But there was no legacy plan, apparently, and they just couldn't maintain it. And it wasn't well constructed in the first place. So now Italy has said, no, we can bring that one back. And we can have sledding here. You know, I saw a lot of reports of Giovanni Malago, who is the president of CONI, the Italian Olympic Committee, saying, no, 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 we're going to have it in Italy. We have to have it in Italy. But he kind of forgot that the tracks in Italy, one, don't work, and nobody wants to build one. Right. They They tried. They put it out for bid, and nobody bid. Right. And granted... Renovating Sasana would cost less than rebuilding the track at Cortina, which was the original plan, but it's still going to cost tens of millions of euros, according to the CBC. And won't be ready in time for a test event, probably. (laughs) And when you don't have a test event in something like sliding, that's how you end up with sliders getting really seriously hurt. Right, right. And the IOC basically said, no, you are not going to do that. And you know what? We wouldn't have this problem, IOC, if you hadn't picked Milan Cortina in the first place. Let's, we can always go back to that. If, if you had gone with the regional plan, out of Stockholm, which would have used the track in Latvia, we would have been not having these conversations and not going around and around about this. And that bid set up this whole idea of the regional games where you're using multiple countries, which is what they're talking about for 2030 as well. So I hope Milan gets its act together and just picks another track. I'm sorry you couldn't make it happen, but it's frustrating to me, I think. Agreed. This is infuriating and upsetting for the sliders. They deserve better. Exactly. So we'll see what happens on this front. And uh, what track we end up having sliding sports at. <laughs> maybe, because... maybe we'll end up back in China. Because <laughs> <laughs> I hope we have sliding sports at this point. But they should be able to make that happen for sure. So just where it's going to be, who knows? We'll see. Hopefully Brendan will know at some point where he's going to slide. Because we hope he's making it. 
I'm just... Oh, he is. I'm just going to put that out and manifest it. Okay. Okay. Well, while you do that, we'll take a break for this week. Let us know what you thought of our interview with Brendan Doyle. You can connect with us on X and Instagram at flamealivepod. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. And don't forget to get our weekly newsletter filled with other fun stories about this week's episode and to check out our Kickstarter campaign. And you can check both of those out at our website, flamealivepod.com. Next week, we have got a great interview for you. It is with author Amy Alley Card about her new book called The Tiger Bells, which is about the early days of the legendary women's athletics team from Tennessee State that spawned a number of Olympians. And, you know, if you got Tiger Bells, we're lined up for that. So be sure to tune in next week. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive.